stories to you. I'd like to start by acknowledging the Wabakal and Waramai people and um, welcome any Aboriginal people who might be in attendance. Um, this is an inaugural event being held in partnership between Newcastle City Library um, and the Newcastle Writers Festival and it's also been funded by Create New South Wales. And we'd hope to make it an annual program so um, it'd be also be great if you get a chance to fill in those surveys which give feedback which would be useful to, you know, creating a, make, turning this into an annual program and, you know, what sort of events are going to be particularly useful and you think are going to be useful for us to list, for us to have. Um, the main festival of the Newcastle Writers Festival is going to be held from the 24th to the 26th of September this year. And um, we'd also like to thank um, local business Fourth Wave Wine and their label Elephant in the Room because in a couple of months the festival will be launching an emerging writer's prize valued at 5000 bucks, thanks to their support. So that might be something to think about. And also at the end of this session we'll be able to drink some of their wine in the room next door. So that's something to think about as well. Um, I'd like to, it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome um, Michael Sala and Andrew Pippos. Um, Michael, who many of you might know as a local Newcastle writer, um, during a childhood spent moving between Europe and Australia, Michael developed a passion for writing and in 2007 he dropped out of medicine to focus on writing his first memoir ma manuscript, Memory Vertigo, which was shortlisted for the Vogel Australian Literary Award that year. Um, he began his PhD in creative writing at the University of Newcastle in 2008. His short fiction and personal essays have since been published in a range of Australian anthologies and literary and personal essays have, sorry, um, range of Australian anthologies, anthology, sorry, I've tangled myself there, and literary journals including Heat, Kill Your Darlings and Best Australian Short Stories in 2009, 2010 and 2011. He received his PhD in creative writing in 2012 and the creative component of his work was published in that same year as the autobiographical novel The Last Thread by Firm Press. The Last Thread went on to win the 2013 Glenda Adams UTS Award for New Writing in the um, New South Wales Premier's Awards and the Commonwealth Book Prize um, for the Pacific Region in 2013. His second novel, The Restorer, was published by text in 2017 and has since been shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award and the New South Wales Premier's Christina Stead Literary Award for Fiction and was also long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award. And Michael lectures here in Newcastle um, at, the you know, at the University of Newcastle in creative writing. Um, also like to welcome Andrew Pippos, who recently published The Luckies. And um, he's a former journalist who has a doctorate in creative writing and currently teaches at the University of Technology. And he's provided a very minimalistic um, biography there. <laughs> um, I'd just like to start um, to ask you, and feel free to take this up either, Michael, but, or Andrew, what is the first memory you have of wanting to be a writer? It's hard to know exactly when I thought this is a job that I could possibly do, um, as opposed to 
being interested in storytelling and that being a really a central part of my life as a reader and also as a sort of a writer of diaries and stories that I didn't show anyone and poems that I didn't show anyone. The um it was probably when I was about sixteen or seventeen I realized that it was possible for someone to, you know, write a manuscript and send it off and get it published. But the earliest sort of my earliest interest in storytelling really comes out of an interest in Greek mythology, an interest in family gossip, um, comic books, young adult novels, and then, you know, the classics. Um, then there's a point where it becomes very serious and you realize that it's actually a core part of your identity. And that was probably when I was an undergrad at university. And from then on, it's been the most consistent, the most important thing in my life, apart from my personal relationships. And, and I think publishing Lucky's last year was the reason why it was so such an important thing for me personally is because I made good on that early, that, that promise, that, that sort of that desire to write a novel, this ambition that gave shape to my life in my 20s and early 30s when there wasn't a lot of shape to my life. I was, I was bouncing around here and there and there didn't really seem to be a lot of direction. Mm. And if I can just say one last thing. Sure, sure. Um, to sort of illustrate that lack of direction I have met Ed before, and it was about 12 years ago at a pub in, in Sydney, in Newtown. And I told him that I was out of work, and I was recently back from London, and I was sort of in a bit of a spot because I didn't really want to be back in Sydney, but my father was very sick and he, he needed looking after. And um, Ed gave me a number for someone to call at a newspaper to see if they had any sub-editing shifts. And I called that number and ended up with a job for about five years after that until I got sick of newspapers and, and then started working in universities. So I've just been bouncing around yeah. for, 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 for you know, more than a decade, from job to job, just getting lucky. And, um, but the, the main thing has always been writing a novel. And has this always been the novel that you've been writing, or has there been other novels before you arrived at this particular one? There was a, there was a manuscript of about 30,000 words that I probably got to the end of, that I, that I abandoned when I was about 26, 27. Um, there is a, there's one page I saved from that book, and it's the first page of the Achilleon section of... Um, of Lucky's, and uh, I was glad to keep keep that and and um, and and um, rescue something from that manuscript. But yeah, I did lose one. We often a lot of writers lose their first. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, you know the fabled manuscript in the drawer sort of thing. Yeah. Hmm. What about you, Michael? Yeah. So um, 
For me, I guess uh, I was a bit um, younger when it sort of struck me. Um, as you said, I moved around a lot as a child. Um, so I ended up in Australia for the first time when I was four and a half. Ended up back in Holland when I was um, seven. And when I was about eight, I got really sick. Uh, for, it, wasn't, it was just it was some weird skin thing that got out of control. And um, I was in the top level of this house that my stepfather at the time was renovating. And um, it, he was a pretty horrible person all up. Um, uh, you know, I don't think you'd disagree with me on that. But um, anyway, one thing that I did that that, that I remember him doing was uh, I was in, in, in this bed at the top of the this house and he came up one time and he gave me a book and he actually, it was one of, it's my only really nice memory of him. And he gave me this book and it was The Hobbit. And so I was about eight at the time and I start reading this book and... It was like this thing where I, I read The Hobbit and then I read The Lord of the Rings and it was all in Dutch. And what I remember about these books is this texture. It was like life was not very good for me at that point. I had a father who was physically violent. I had a – that was a stepfather who was physically violent. I had a biological father who rejected me from an early age and I was a bit of an outcast at school. I couldn't even really speak Dutch and yet I could read and I just remember this fire kind of just started burning inside me and I just knew that I wanted to write books where people would kind of taste the food and experience the world and it was I imagine it almost like building a fire like a good book it's like you build a fire for your soul in your mind and mm. it warms you and that was the thing that I wanted to learn how to do so I kind of had that desire very early and yet I've always suffered from a really huge lack of self-confidence. And so does these two warring sides to me. There is the desire and this massive lack of confidence. So until my early 30s, that was really extreme and I would give up on writing constantly and try other things. Um, but I'd always come back to it until finally I just, before I wrote that first fully published book, I just literally thought to myself, I don't care anymore. I don't care if I suck at this. I just have to do it. And I'd rather fail at this than succeed at anything else. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. We were talking in the last session, I think Omar Seikar, the poet, sort of mentioned the idea of reading as a shelter. Yeah. You know, a place where you are safe from the rest of the world mm. and you can go and sort of nourish yourself. And your image of the fire just struck me as a very similar image to that kind of idea. And so do we begin to become writers with a sense of a wound perhaps? You know, does it take to be wounded in some way to, become, to want to become a writer in the, the first place? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting question um, and, and I'm not entirely sure. Like it, it might be a subtle sort of a wound, I suppose, where you want it, but, but to me, I, I guess at its heart it might be just that desire to connect in mm. that way, to build that fire for someone else to, to warm themselves by too. Yeah, so within your appreciation yeah. of what it's done for you to be able to replicate that for somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think that I do write out of a, a wound, out of a need to, 
to order something that is disordered in my life. But certainly, I've been converted to the art form by the art form itself. And, and I want to contribute to it. I want to provide the kind of experiences that I've had from literature that is, that is part of it. Yeah, and, and what, like Michael, you've talked about Tolkien as one of your touchstones. What about you, Andrew? What are, you, what are your touchstone books? There are so many. Early on, it would be Homer, Sophocles, yep. um, Dickens, Hardy, Beckett, and then they're all very typical books for 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 a writer, I think. Um, then it changed. It, it's changed a lot, you know. That Cynthia Ozick has been a constant, Anne Carson. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And you read. When you're reading, like now, do you read with half an eye as to how you can learn with your writing? Or are you still kind of in that moment of succour, just absorbed within the books you you read? Well, for me, um, yeah, like my tastes very much vary with whatever I'm working on. So um, for a while I was fully into short stories when I was in my short story phase. (laughs) And um, then I really buried myself in literary fiction for a long time. Um, And, yeah, lots of different writers there kind of really interested me. Um, and uh, then, you know, I've recently I, I, I've kind of really started focusing because I find literary fiction really hard to write emotionally and it kind of drains me a little bit. Um, the last two books were both difficult to write because they felt so close to home that it was like just emotionally taxing. Um, and so I thought, well, I might move away from literary fiction for a while and go back in a different direction and so now I'm reading lots of speculative fiction again and I remembered how much joy it gave me because I no longer see escapism in the same way. I used to see it as a cop-out whereas now I I see it less as escapism as more as sidestepping to look at the world from a different angle, Mm. in a different imaginative lens. So, um, yeah, I'm sort of reading to satisfy my passion and my joy at the moment and to learn how people that I love do what they do but I'm always studying what they do I never read a book I love once I read it three four times to really um, I guess the first time I read it and I just go oh I loved it the second time I read it I, I start asking why what is it that I loved about this what, what are they doing and then the third time I start really breaking it down yeah for me, it's it's all about where I am in the writing process. I mean, if 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 I'm quite early on in a in a manuscript, I'm just reading for joy, and if yeah. I'm not really paying attention to technique too much. But when it comes, if I'm working on structural edits or if I'm working on proofs, I'll go back to certain books and look at how you know Cynthia Ozick or Nabokov sort of negotiated temporal shifts in, in certain chapters or the way that Bello was, you know, wedged consciousness into the narrative at certain points and little technical things like that become important. So rereading is a big part of the process, but it really depends on where I am in the, in the writing process. Yeah, so you'll read differently for different things mm. in order to kind of give you the energy. Yeah, yeah. So it really in, 
the final year of working on Lucky's, all I did was reread books that I'd already that I'd already read, you know, that I'd read decades earlier. Or... Yeah, like I know some writers they won't even read any fiction when they're writing. They they find it because it you know it disrupts their own sort of absorption in their own particular fictional world. Yeah. To me, it's fuel. It's yeah. It's like I just want to fill the the well up with words. I I wouldn't. I, I need to read when I write. Yeah, although I, I, I do sort of make a point, you know, of I don't want writing in a sense that um, I don't want to read stuff that's not going to that, that, that's not going to take me in the direction I want to take it. So I, that's that, that is that idea of if I'm interested in a certain direction, I read about people who are negotiating it as Andrew does, I guess, because then it can reinforce what I'm trying to do. Whereas sometimes and then I have to switch off from other stuff that might take me in the opposite direction. Yeah. yeah. This might be getting a bit technical, but if I'm I didn't read a lot of first person books really in the the final two years or three years of working on Lucky's. And now my the book I'm working on now is first person, so I don't imagine reading a lot of third third person. Oh, so you you you're kind of you you're POV specific when you're um <laughs> <laughs> I know that sounds yeah. sounds very dorky. Yeah, but it's but nice it's true. Dorky, you know? POV is important. <laughs> it is very important. Yeah. Um, like, I suppose you've got two books, Michael. You've got one, Andrew. Would you like to talk us maybe just to the inception? You know, what, what was the kind of inceptive state around the beginning, you know, of one of your books? You know, where, where, does, where does it come from, you know, that, you know, you could be writing anything. There are words and there are everything like that. But what starts you on the particular path that ends up producing the particular kind of book that you've written. It's it's funny, isn't it? Because I find that being able to explain something like that, um, it's way more complicated than I could ever explain. Because it's, it's this this whole emotional landscape that yeah. you inhabit when it. So I'll just try, and it could be a different explanation to what I would give tomorrow or the day after. But for me, basically. Um, I think maybe the second book's an interesting example of that because it's kind of fiction. Well, it is, it's is—it's historical fiction in a way, even though it's 1989. But um, I, my first book was about my childhood, largely, and it was about, you know, my mum and my stepfather sort of travelling around, you know, Europe and here, and my stepfather was this violent person and at one point he actually um, threatened a, a murder-suicide and disappeared with my younger brother. And that has been the endless source of grief for my mum because she always wonders if she should have done more, if she should have pursued, if she should have called the police. And um, when I wrote my book, people kind of went in and some people have very strong opinions about that. I mean, it's partly the way I write. I kind of leave things a bit open-ended. And then some people thought my mum was a really strong person. Some people thought that she had exposed me needlessly to harm. Um, and so that was sort of a very live question for me. And it was just sitting around in my head. And I started reading a bit about that kind of stuff. And I read... I started reading about husbands that kill their wives. Um, this was about seven years ago, I guess, I started reading about that. And I read this one story about this child who went away to for a day's camp or whatever. It was like some day activity. And 
she had all these dramas during the day and when she came home, her mum was dead mm. and had been killed by her father. And that just stuck with me. And it's sort of that idea of potentiality and of how quickly it can happen at the right moment just haunted me. And so one of the first scenes that I came up with in my book that I suddenly pictured was someone coming home to a world that has changed irrevocably. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and it's not near the start of the book. It happens very late in the book. And so then the real practice for me was trying to figure out how someone got to that place. Right. Okay. So when you started, like your, your beginning wasn't the actual beginning of the book in a way. No, it was yeah. right near the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. For me, it really, with Lucky's, it begins with theme on one hand and, and a certain milieu on the other that I wanted to represent. That setting is the, the Greek Australian cafe, that, that sort of vanished world um, that I knew quite well in my early childhood and that always fascinated me. And I always knew that my first book would involve that in some way. But I needed more, more than just a setting. Yeah. Um, and what I had was theme. And what I was interested in was the idea of how people respond to failure and success. It's, that was a, it interested me a great deal in my late 20s and, and, and 30s. And um, I suppose it was a fear as well. So I knew that I wanted characters to go through the, those motions to deal with success and failure. And I wanted to represent that. And I had some scenes in mind that I needed to write towards. And, that, and I just started. And the book changed so many times throughout the process. But those themes remained and the setting, of course, remained. And you've got in your book, you've got, um, and I, I, this isn't really containing any spoilers, but you've got an A strand of the novel, which is you know Lucky, who's the the franchisee, or the, no, the creator of a franchise chain of mm. you know Greek Australian cafes. But then you've got a girl called Emily. And how out of that original theme did you manage to kind of where does the second part of that story? You know, we've got the Greek cafe story. Where does the second part of the story come from? Oh, I have to... What happened was I got about four drafts in and I realised that there was something I needed to add. And um, Emily came to me and she was a little different in... The, the first Emily was a little, was, was a little different. But... Um, it seemed, her story seemed consonant with other elements of that 2002 storyline, that the, the chronologically later storyline in the novel, which was how is the past affecting her present? You know, a lot of the book is about legacy, yeah. things that we've lost. And, and she's going through similar things to Lucky, but, but different enough. 
Yeah, and was there a creative struggle to find a way of linking those elements together in, in, in terms of the drafting of...? There was. The struggle was, was really... to just get her character right. And um, the struggle wasn't l linking the storylines because you know, she's a part of the story. Her father kind of started the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, she's looking for her father. Yeah. In Sydney. She's looking to complete this, this image of him in her mind. You know, she wants this figure to love, but... Um, Lucky has other ideas about that because she actually he actually knows knows the father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's not a particularly lovable person. Um, the struggle was with the character. So I don't know. I mean, this is again like a deep dive into early into like abandoned manuscripts and drafts that didn't work out. But in the first Emily draft, she was she was based on someone I knew in London. Yeah. Someone I worked with at the Independent newspaper. And it was just too close. Like the, the the person I based the first iteration of Emily, uh, that first model for Emily was just not appropriate for the for the book. She, she was a completely different person. Hmm. Um, how how much then you know? And I'll put this to you first, Michael. Um, how much did your books change between? The, like the first draft and how many drafts, I don't know, but, you know, in terms of the process of writing, you know, writing a book is a long and arduous thing. How much, how many drafts did it take to produce your books and then sort of also how much did things change, you know, from the beginning to the actual point at which they were published? Heaps, yeah. Like, I mean, for me, um, the, the first book I wrote, The Last Thread, I, I wrote the first manuscript in like five months and I was like, yes. And, you know, it was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin and I was like, oh, not the Miles Franklin, but the uh, literary Australian, the, what is it called? The Vogel, that's it. And I was like, oh, this is so great. And then it wasn't published and I knew that it wasn't right and it was really rough. And it took me, that was two seven, it took me another five years to knock it into shape and I rewrote it constantly. I put it aside for a couple of years. I learned how to write short stories. I did all this stuff trying to figure out how to write. Um, and honestly, when I finished it, I was like, that's as good as I can do right now. And it was, it's a quite a fragmented novel. It was an experiment. And, and that one was like that. And then with my second novel, I was super ambitious at first I like had this whole thing with like um, five or six different vantage points it was going to be like 150,000 words and it was going to be all this stuff moving through time sometimes it would go into magic realism and this and that and I wrote the first sort of 50,000 words of that and sent it to my uh, editor of the first book and they had moved to text in the meanwhile and we set up this conference call with Michael Hayward and they were like let's really limit what you're doing here a little bit so it's achievable and um, three of the perspectives just dropped out straight away um, and I rewrote it 
from the perspective of a 14, 15-year-old girl and a 33-year-old mother. And the perspective of the father, for example, just dropped out of it because in the end I thought it was more interesting if we never knew what he was thinking, if we were in the same position as the, the mother as to trying to figure out what his motivations were because I think that's such an important aspect of understanding how abusive relationships work. It's trying to figure out the other person. Yeah. So I literally then rewrote it and rewrote it and it would expand to 110. I'd knock it back down to 60 and it went through so many drafts before I find the fi final sort of form. And my editor at the time, Rebecca Stafford, was really, she was just essential to me understanding what I was trying to do and the best way to do it. Uh, the book changed so much. I lost count of how many drafts. If I'd kept count, it would have been bad for me. Um, I'm not an obsessive person, but I am an obsessive rewriter. Um, look, I made almost 900 changes to the to the proof pages before it was sent to the to the printer. Um, the book changed a lot. Two examples: um, Emily didn't turn up until quite late in the in the state in the in the writing process and in the very first draft lucky died halfway through the book and the rest of the book was about a character called valia <laughs> so if you've read the book you 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 read a very different book from that first draft yeah okay great and the, so i made some bad decisions in those early drafts I mean, you know, I mean, somebody's, you know, once I've heard it said that, you know, one of the great things about art is, you know, the cost of making mistakes isn't that great. You know, like, you know, if you're a, as, as a job, you know, you muck up something in a draft of a novel, you know, it's not the end of the world. You can come back tomorrow and fix it. You know, if you're, you know, it's different to kind of giving somebody the wrong medicine or, yeah. you know, sort of stuff like that, you know. And, but that's like the kind of idea of art as play. Mm. Is, is that kind of important to you, rather than as not as just as work? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and it, like play is so super important. I think um, a lot of my favourite books are extremely playful, and they're often about really serious things. And that willingness to kind of that to change anything in a draft is so super important. To do something like, hey, I've killed this character halfway through. What if I didn't? How would that change things? And to rewrite everything accordingly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and, and I mean, I've got like a couple of books that I don't even have anymore that were terrible that I wrote um, <laughs> and that I just never wanted to see the light of today. I, I hid my honours thesis because I didn't want anyone to look upon it ever again. Um, but everything I've written has taught me something. I still think I'm really at a very early stage of learning about writing in some ways. And so my first two books, they're just really small steps to me figuring out and all the suffering that went into that, all that hard work. I mean, it's just, just a small part of everything I've tried to learn that I want to learn, I guess, yeah. Is that one of the great things in a way, like your idea that you feel like you're just at the beginning of a journey? And one of the things that strikes me about writing is you can always be at the beginning of that journey and there's yeah. a wonderfully sustaining, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that you can conquer. 
No, and it does keep you passionate and yeah. and young in that way because you're always like going, oh, God, I've got so much to learn right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it keeps well, you young, yeah. Sorry. Andy. I mean, you're always learning. You're always making mistakes. Mm. But um, it's important not to be crushed by the, by those mistakes. I mean, you just treat it. I've always treated it like a, just a minor rupture in a friendship, you know? You sort of forgive each other, yeah, yeah. and then you move on with. Uh, yeah, well, that's a nice. That's a nice way of expressing it, and then you just get back to work on the thing. And yeah, yeah. Um, so when is there a moment when you feel the work is finished? Having decided that writing is endless, is there a moment where you feel that? An individual work is finished. There was a moment at the end of Lucky's when I felt it was finished, and I think that my publisher felt that I would never be finished with it, <laughs> and certain people in my life felt that as well. Yeah. But there really was a point when I gave it up and 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 just made peace with it. And you need you need to find that moment, I think, because very soon it'll be out in the world, and people will have opinions of it, and you need to be certain and secure, or else it will be a distressing time for you. Yeah. And you want to enjoy publishing your first book. You don't want to be thrown, you know, here and there by reviews in newspapers or readers' comments or anything like that, you need to be able to say, I agree or I disagree. Or you need to be able to push opinions to the periphery. Yeah. Because ultimately they're not that important to your art. You know, you're going to write that next book. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. But how, you know, the reception of the world, is that a, is that a kind of almost frightening moment? you know, what people going to think or are you sort of sufficiently decided within yourself that you've finished it and you're happy with it that you're not going to worry about that? I can answer that really quickly. Um, it's frightening if you feel like the reading has been unfair. Um, but otherwise, it's not really that important and it's important not to read every single thing that's written about you. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's funny because now I'm terrified by it. Like I am. Like I always have this, this fear inside me that I'm actually just terrible at what I do, and so, and so I always have that feeling of, oh my god, I think this is I think this is all right, and someone's going to tear it apart, and they're going to be right, and so I it it makes me anxious. Um, very anxious, I guess. And and with my first two books, I just reached a point where I couldn't do any more. I couldn't give the book any more. I just ran out of ideas for how I could make it better. I had no idea anymore. And that was the point where I thought, okay, it's finished. <laughs> but, right. but, you know, that's not like a triumphant moment. It's just like, oh, God, I think I'm finished. I hope so. <laughs> um I'm kind of hoping that the next book I'll be more like, yes, I finished. This is good, um, but I'm I'm not going to hold my breath. How do you then, you know, with that sort of anxiety attendant upon the end of it? You know, is the creative process something 
that you take pleasure in or is it more something that's a compulsion that you can't afford not to do? For my first two books, um, it was just a compulsion, really. Yeah. The stuff I'm writing now, I'm really enjoying, um, but it still terrifies me. I'm still scared of getting out of bed in the morning and facing it. Like, as in, I wake up and I go, oh, God, I'm going to have to come up with all these solutions and ideas, and I can't do that right now. And then I kind of have to talk myself out of bed often. Um, you know, every morning it's the same. It's like I'm starting all over again and rolling a you know, so does that. But once I'm doing it, I I love it. So, yeah, that's my view. What about you, Andrew? Writing is the best part of the process. Um, but it's not an even experience. Yeah. Some days you you really do get your butt kicked. And some days you have the best time that you've ever had. So it's... It is still, it's, it's, it, it, it's the thing that you do, you know, being a, being a published author and that's, that's, that's secondary. How much time do you find, you know, you both of you are teaching creative writing at unis and things like that and, you know, we've been talking about, you know, it's really most royalty statements are not going to pay the bills completely for, you know, how, how do you sort of juggle the existence well, the, the kind of necessities of practical existence with that of a creative existence. With great difficulty. <laughs> like it's scared to answer that one. Yeah, it, it is funny though, isn't it? Because um, like I, I, I was talking to my youngest daughter the other day and, and she said that she wouldn't want to be a writer and every time one of my kids says that, I'm just like, yes. You know, um, what a relief um, because it, it is kind of something that if, you, if you're going to do it, you know you're going to do it on some level. You kind of, you know you can't avoid it, right? Uh, at some point you just, you might not accept it straight away, but at some point you go, okay, I'm, I want to write. I'm just going to have to do it. Um, and yet you kind of have to make a living as well. And so, yeah, like, you know, I've got a full-time job as a lecturer. There's room in that to write, but, you know, you're still working pretty hard. I've got three children and, uh, you know, um, when I spend time with them, it's pretty exhausting. Um, and then if you get the time to write, you can put a lot of pressure on yourself I just want to be lazy um, and then I just think, no, this is my time. If I want to do this, I have to do it. And so it's not so much juggling as wildly grabbing at any moment you can get where your brain is half useful enough for you to write. So I have very little social life. Um, I just don't have the time. That's the first thing that's gone out the window for me. I exercise a bit, but really I always put the writing first because you know I, I only have so much time and if I if I don't actually steal my time from everywhere I can find it I just it won't get done um, well I suppose a lot of writers have been journalists or academics and found times within those with, with, within those work days to to write books that seems to be getting a little bit harder for journalists and, and academics. I mean, I've been 
employed as a lecturer now for three months at UTS and I feel like I'm being swallowed alive by, by the university. There's been so much upheaval in the sector and um, I don't know if things will get better or, or, or what will happen, but you just have to steal those hours, two hours here, three hours there. You can get a lot done in three hours. Um, sometimes after you know four or five hours, the work <laughs> gets pretty bad, yeah. so it's, it's better off stopping. But um, the the problem for me is that yeah, you need to you know make money, then you need time to write. But I also need time to just be just be a sort of blob on the couch or going out for walks and just thinking about the book. I need I need that time as well. Yeah. I think um, Graham Greene, you know, sort of used to sit on a boat and then he'd write exactly 500 words every morning. He'd start at about 6.30 and then once, even if it was in mid-sentence, like he'd stop at 500 words exactly and then pour himself his first gin and tonic for the day, <laughs> often by about 11 o'clock. <laughs> um, you know, and obviously, you know, and I was reading the other day that kind of um, Ernest Hemingway was paid, I think it was The Atlantic, um, $30,000 for a short story. Oh, those were the days, weren't they? I know. Like, you know, how, how do we kind of, you know, this, this, in, in this world of kind of where, you know, writing remains essential but is nonetheless not rewarded, you know, what, 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 what's the value of persistence? You know, what, what do we want to, you know, do we don't, you know, we could run off and write real estate copy and still kind of get some sort of sense of organising words on a page. You know, what, what really motivates to keep going in, in, a, in a fully creative sense against a world that's not necessarily hospitable to the, to the act of doing it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because so many of the people I grew up with and they're in their 40s and early 50s, I guess, um, you know, people that were a bit older than me and a bit younger and stuff like that, and, you know, they all have stable careers mainly, the ones a lot of them do, and they've got houses and things like that that I just kind of sacrificed. And yet I feel like I'm happier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I'm kind of... Um, because I'm doing exactly what I've always dreamed of doing and the money isn't is pretty awful, but... I love what I'm doing and it's kind of, in a way, for me, it's like my spirituality in a sense, you know. So um, even though I really worry what other people think, I always look ahead to what I want to try next. That's, that's where my passion lies. And that's kind of like a gift that you can't put a price on in a way. Yeah, and it, 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 so it's irreducible in a way. Yeah, it is. Yeah. For me, it's a core part of my identity. I mean, when I was a young man, I told myself that one day I'd publish a book and when I grew up, I, d I did it. And, and, and that was a big thing for me, but also a belief in the importance of literature and fiction in particular. Mm. Um, you know, there are, there, are, there are truths about life that are best expressed in the form of stories. We need those stories. And prose fiction has a particular way, when you compare it with other narrative art forms, it has 
it's able to move through time. It's able to incorporate consciousness much better than film or television or narrative poetry or theater. It has, it has special powers that make it a, a relevant art form. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, the ability, for instance, to represent internal states, you know, which you can't, you can only imply in film or television because, mm. you know, it's natively all surface or speech. I mean, but so much of our lives go on inside our heads that mm. you don't, they don't come out in speech or action. So really only prose fiction can get at those stories. Yeah, and even then it's an approximation you know, if you go back to modernism, for instance, where they're trying to work out how to represent thought on the page. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, and that's what I think is the weird magic of it that we all just take for granted. Like, you know, I'm short-sighted, so if I have a book here, all I can see is, you know, paper and ink and it's just, there's nothing there. And yet if I bring it close... I can feel like I'm in someone's head. And I love that moment when you're in someone's head and then you hear a noise and it startles you and you kind of go, oh, I'm in someone's head and I just <laughs> got startled out of it. I didn't even realise. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the closest thing to magic, I think, that exists in the world, that ability to affect us in that way. Oh. Thank you, um, Andrew and Michael, so much for um, offering these insights this afternoon. That's been, it's been fascinating. Um, I'd also like to remind everyone, if you haven't had a chance to read these books, you can go and buy them up there from Max at Macleans, and they're on the table there, and I'd highly recommend, having read them, I'd highly recommend them all. Um, and, yeah, thanks, thanks, everyone, for coming along. And there are drinks next door. to you.